Good morning, church. Um, it's great to be uh, with you. Um, we uh, are going to take a brief break um, from the series we've been on, on Spiritual Warfare, the Unseen Battle. And for the next two weeks, um, we are going to talk about what I'm going to call a Christian vision of politics. Christian vision of politics. And reasons are obvious as we head towards our national elections. Um, it's, it's been a, a really long year. Uh, can, I, can I get an amen? I'm just, I'm just saying that just to name it, okay? Uh, COVID has upended life as we know it, and many of us are tired, exhausted, worn out, wondering if and when life might get back to some sense of normalcy. And on top of that, for the last several months, we've endured the trauma of racial injustice as a nation. And there's a real sense in which many are wondering if our country can ever be a country that cares about justice and dignity of every life for every person. And to add to the stress, anxiety, fatigue, the election season obviously is upon us. Uh, many of us have voted already, and many more will go to the polls next Tuesday to elect the next president of the United States. Uh, I've heard many say that this is the most important election in their lifetime. Very important things are at stake. And I need to remind all of us again that my job is to pastor you. My job is to help you think biblically and to act as a follower of Jesus. And that's important because people who love Jesus will vote very differently this year. And many also will not vote, not out of passivity, but out of biblical conviction. I wonder if within our church family, there are those of us that come from the Anabaptist tradition, who choose not to vote, actually, out of biblical conviction, not a passivity, that casting a vote is an affirmation of political powers. And I want to say that in the body of Christ, whether you choose to vote, not to vote, or choose to vote differently, that we act in a way that reflects Jesus Christ towards one another. And I'm going to go ahead and talk about that some more in a bit. Now, if I do my job this morning, uh, I will offend somebody at some point. Uh, now, that's not because that's my intention, but it's because what God often asks us to do would not make sense or align with what the world often says about things. And this includes political engagement. We don't think biblically about politics. We're driven by fear and partisanship, and we have to do better as Christians. One last note before I dive in. Those of us who are watching this morning, some of you don't normally attend New Community. You're watching this because you're invited by folks who attend our church, maybe parents, aunts, uncles, brothers and sisters, friends, family, co-workers. Thank you for being here. And I pray that more than anything else, you will hear and see Jesus exalted. That's what our church is about. Yeah. If you want to know what our church is about, we follow Jesus, we invite others to follow Jesus, and we follow Jesus in community. Let me say that again. We follow Jesus, we invite others to follow the way of Jesus, and we follow Jesus in community. So we might not agree on everything, but my hope is that you will listen to the very end. To the very end. Um, Christian vision of politics. Um, have your Bibles ready because we're going to be all over the place in Scripture. Uh, let's begin here. Uh, that is, when you find the word church in the New Testament, in the English Bibles, you'll find the Greek word ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Ekklesia. That Greek word is used 75 times in the singular and about 110, 110 times in the plural. And that word is most translated as church in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. That word itself was not a religious word. There were other religious words that could have been used. But the word ekklesia, as you'll see on the screen, literally means assembly or gathering. Assembly or a gathering. And it described the assembly or the gathering of citizens in a Greek city who had gathered or assembled to discuss governance of that city. 
So think of a town hall meeting with city council members and citizens of that particular Greek city gathered and assembled to discuss city matters. Now, and here's the thing, the early church, of course, comes along and uses this very familiar word to describe their gathering, but hello, they did it in a subversive way. Paul, when he writes all these letters, epistles to the various churches in these cities, wrote often the introduction this way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the ecclesia of the Thessalonians. Now, if he had stopped there, nobody would have batted an eye. The ecclesia of the Thessalonians, or Thessalonica, was a very normal thing. Citizens of Thessalonica gathered together to discuss city matters. But what made it subversive is Paul goes on and says what? Ecclesia the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word in literally is by the work of, or on the authority of, or for the sake of. See, here's the thing about this assembly, this gathering, this ecclesia of people God, in, in God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These citizens, check this out, we're saying we find our identity as dual citizens. These citizens, these strange new assembly, Ecclesia, in Christ, boldly proclaimed that although they were citizens of an earthly city, the city of man, they ultimately found their identity, hello, as citizens of the heavenly city or the city of God. Although they belonged to an earthly nation, they were citizens of another kingdom. And check this out, where Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that, my friends, was treasonous. They saw their identity as aliens, exiles, strangers on earth, looking forward to a celestial city, an eternal world to come. And now, this, this identity, though, shaped them into a people who saw their calling as the calling to look, to look and operate like citizens of the coming kingdom here and now. See, they saw their calling as calling not to withdraw from culture or attack the culture, but engage their culture to bring renewal to every arena of society. Arts, business, education, agriculture, and yes, even politics. They saw their calling as the calling to live as an alternative society, an alternate community, a city within a city which as it grew went on to become a countercultural force in the Roman Empire. Um, about 20, 30 years after the apostle, last apostle John, John died, there's an ancient Christian document called the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. Now, Mathetes simply means student or disciple, so we don't know if that was a guy's name. What we do know is that this is a letter written by a Christian to a non-Christian explaining Christianity. And you could look it up, you see it up on your screen. It's 12 chapters a letter. And here's an excerpt. Let me tell you why Christianity is spreading so fast. Christians busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They live in their own native lands, but they live as aliens for every foreign country to them, their native land, and their native land is to them every foreign country. They marry and have children, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They share their table with everyone, but they don't share their bed with everyone. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are treated outrageously, but behave respectfully. They're mocked and blessed in return. When they do good, they're attacked. When they're attacked, they rejoice as if being given new life. Four attributes that describe the early church, just from this quote. First, complete absence of racism. Two, high view of life. We're talking about a time in which infanticide was norm and accepted. And Christians came along and said, no, every life matters. The third, biblical sex ethic, chastity and singleness and fidelity in marriage. And fourth, they were radically generous to the poor and needy. So church, check this out. The early church's political platform would have been this. We're fiercely opposed to abortion, and yet we're equally committed to the life of the poor. 
We hold to a biblical sex ethic and a biblical view of marriage, and we are equally devoted to fighting racial injustice, economic injustice, environmental injustice at every level of society. Question, would their platform have been Republican or Democrat? Answer, neither. The early Christians were complete cultural misfits. They shattered all known political categories used to define people. No political labels were adequately sufficient to capture who they were. You know what they were? Can I introduce a new sort of word? They were kingdom independent. Everybody say that with me. They were kingdom independent. Kingdom values, kingdom convictions do not place us neatly in one party. If the world is able to define us, church, clearly as aligning with one party, one platform, one candidate, we are not doing something right. We are not. Being kingdom independent means that our deepest allegiance is not to a candidate or a party, but to Jesus Christ. Being kingdom independent means that our politics are not shaped by the donkey or the elephant, but by the lamb. Being kingdom independent means that more important than left or the right is being centered on Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen, church? Now here's the thing, when you're centered on Christ and you're kingdom independent, it doesn't make it clearer, it actually makes it more difficult for you to engage politics. Let me just give you one example. If you're kingdom independent and you're centered on Christ, on the one hand, you will take seriously the life of the child in the mother's womb. You can't read Psalm 139. I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 1, you thought about me before the foundations of earth was laid and say that abortion is not a big deal or that it's okay. We need to love the children in the womb and the moms who carry them and address all the reasons behind someone considering or having abortion. Having said that, if you're kingdom independent and centered on Christ, you don't only promote the preciousness of life in the womb. Yes, we care for the children in the womb, but let's not ignore them once they're out of the tomb. Let's be for all of life and not just the first nine months of it. So as kingdom independent people, we volunteer at Prexy Centers. We foster children in need in order to restore them to their parents or adopt them to our homes. We spend time with single parents in low-income neighborhoods where kids have far less opportunities. If the zeal in the church on abortion legislation and the zeal for judicial appointment is also matched by the zeal to love the children and the women in our community, Communities, I believe that we could change the climate of abortion in our country. Centered on Christ. Not to the left, not to the right. My aim today is not to share my political opinions or preferences or convictions or calculations. It is inappropriate for pastors to use the pulpit for political means. My job is not to tell you how to vote or who to vote for, because if that's what you were hoping that I would do, you're lazy. You're lazy. You're lazy. Think, Christian. Think, Christian. My job is to open the word of God and point you to Jesus, amen? amen? My job is to teach you what God says, not just about politics, but about every aspect of your life and to encourage you to trust him and to follow him totally, wholeheartedly with every fiber of your being. If you've been discouraged at how the church and pastors have interacted with politics to the point where you might be drawn to Jesus but pushed away by the church, if that's you, I want to invite you to hang until the very end. Don't tune me out in the middle of this. Hang with me to the very end, friend. My aim today is not to share my political opinions. My aim today is, though, is to lay the groundwork for a theology of politics. We have an incredibly weak and uninformed theology of politics. This took decades in the making 
and it's going to take decades to undo. My job is not just to teach you for this election. My job is to teach you so that you could teach your children on how to engage politics. If I were to ask right now, how many of you guys growing up in church, that grew up in church, were taught a robust theology of politics, my guess is that there will be a tiny fraction of you. Followers of Jesus are unsure about how their faith should influence engagement with the public square generally, but politics more specifically. No wonder voting patterns are often determined less by scripture than by race, than by income or consumerism. Whether you live in the city or the suburbs, whether you shop at Whole Foods or Bass Pro, or whether you listen to NPR, CNN, or Fox News, unless the church is able to disciple their people in terms of how to think biblically about not just voting, but politics in general, we will be, continue to be influenced by partisan voices on the radio and the news, and not Jesus. And I, for one, will not allow that to happen in this church. Two questions I'm going to ask, and then we'll talk about the significance. Two questions this whole sermon is centered on. One, why should Christians be politically engaged? And secondly, how should Christians be politically engaged? Why should Christians be politically engaged? How? Should Christians be politically engaged? So why should Christians be politically engaged? First, this is a lordship issue. It's a lordship of Jesus Christ issue. What do I mean? We belong to a different kingdom ruled by a different king who influences every aspect of our lives. Amen? There is no secular or spiritual divide as if attending church, Bible study, prayer, fasting is spiritual while work, recreation, and political engagement is secular. Some of you have been taught that. My faith tells me that everything is spiritual. My faith tells me that the very lens through which I view everything informs the very facet of my life, including the work I do, the words I write, the causes I support, how I spend my money, and how I express community, and the way I vote is influenced by my king, and his name is Jesus. Hey. Let me make this very clear. And you're going, how is this political engagement, though, kingdomish? There is a huge difference between being political and being partisan. Partisanship is about parties, candidates, platforms, campaigns. That is the ugly, mudslinging stuff that turns people off. But the word politics, those of you that paid attention in Philosophy 101, politics comes from the Greek words polis, meaning city-state, and polites, meaning citizens. So literally, politics, check this out, is the art of being a citizen in the city where we live. Politics is the art of being a good citizen in the city or the palace where we live. Politics, in other words, is about how we organize our communities. It's about how we live together. It's about what we agree to do with shared resources from building communities to raising an army. So, following Jesus, or followers of Jesus, should be the most politically engaged citizens of a city or a country who are known for being the most informed, who are known for being, uh, offering thoughtful solutions to impact the citizens spiritually, economically, culturally, and socially. Why? Because Jesus is our king and his lordship impacts everything that we do. And when we do, as citizens, we give a preview of the kingdom that is to come. It's a lordship issue. Secondly, why should Christians be politically engaged? Because Jesus and his message were as political as they were spiritual. <laughs> now, I know this is going to take convincing to some of y'all, and unfortunately, I don't have like 30 minutes. <laughs> but listen to this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, this is Jesus himself saying this. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' words. 
His ministry, his life was about the kingdom, not forgive me of my sins so I can go to heaven. The kingdom of God, the inbreaking of the rule and reign of God. Now, we so read our Bibles through a Western individual lens. That's why some of you grew up, whenever you saw the words kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, you, you thought, well, kingdom of heaven is God lives in my heart and he brings me inner peace. I have news for you. When Jesus' audience heard Jesus invoke the kingdom, nobody thought inner peace. When Jesus invoked the kingdom of God, although his audience was very misguided as to who and how the kingdom of God was going to come, they all believed that it was going to deal with real hunger, real injustice, real oppression, and real suffering. Whenever somebody says to me, just stick to preaching the gospel, I go, you might want to reread the New Testament because Jesus didn't do that. You look at the life of Jesus, what he said and what he did, and you see it wasn't just preach the gospel, although that is foundational and fundamental. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has known me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. Along with preaching the gospel, he fed the hungry. He delivered people from demonic oppression. He broke down racial barriers and he challenged power structures. He gave equal time to transforming people's hearts as well as renovating social structures. Now, realizing this about Jesus, let me ask you something. Are these issues, the ones issues I'm going to call out right now, political or spiritual, or are they both? Protecting the lives of the unborn as well as lives of millions of children who live in poverty. They're both political and spiritual. What about immigration reform? Gun control? Mass incarceration, caring for the planet, ensuring equality for all people, confronting violence and bigotry, caring for the sick, avoiding war, fighting government corruption. If you are a follower of Jesus, these matters have to be both political and spiritual or your faith is neutered and inconsequential to real life. Why should Christians be politically engaged? Jesus was in his preaching and life. And third, why should Christians be politically engaged? Because at the core of our faith is the call to love our neighbors and to work for the common good. To love our neighbors, work for the common this, good. This, this theme is so woven through scripture, I don't even have time to go through all the passages in the message translation of Isaiah 56.1, this is what Eugene Peterson, this is how he translates it. God's message, guard my common good. Do what's right and do it in the right way. For salvation is just around the corner. My setting things right is about to go into action. Now you'll see the scripture passages on the screen. When we work for the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city, Jeremiah 29, 7, we're loving our neighbors and working for the common good. When we treat others as we would be treated, Matthew 7, 12, we're loving our neighbors and working for the common good. When we don't seek our own selfish interests, but interests of others, Philippians 2, 4, we're loving our neighbors and working for the common good. When Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me, he was inviting us, church, to love our neighbors and seek the common good. Loving our neighbors and seeking the common good calls us to lay aside our preferences and our privileges and seek what's best for everyone, beginning with the last, the least, the most vulnerable, and the most forgotten. This is foundational 
to being a follower of Jesus. Did you realize that this is actually the evangelical legacy? I know some of us are like, well, and our culture has co-opted that word. But you realize it was evangelical Christians in the 19th century when it came to various social reforms, like fighting to end slavery, fighting for women's right to vote, fighting to institute child labor laws, fighting for civil rights, those who led the way in speaking and acting on behalf of the weak, the oppressed, and the marginalized were the very same people who radically challenged the status quo, were the very same people who were led by their conviction and their faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because their faith wasn't just relegated to the spiritual realm. But their faith called them to love their neighbors and work for the common good politically, economically, and socially. Um, some of you may know that we have an alderman at our church. Daniel Espada has <laughs> been a part of our church from the get-go. I've known that man since he was like 19 or 20 years old, all the way to North Park days. He sent me this email. This was after he had been elected as alderman, okay? He said, I was talking with my policy director about our work, how affordable housing intersects with economic development, investment in mental health intersects with public safety. And he said, and Daniel quotes, I'm writing this five minutes after a, conversion, a conversation so I can remember. He said, his, his, his direct policy director said, you know, Daniel, I feel like you're working toward a systematically more peaceful version of our city. And Daniel says, I wanted to tell him that that's called the kingdom of God. It blessed my heart that he could see where we're trying to go and that perhaps I'm fulfilling the mission God has for me. Please keep praying for me that I can keep it up. It's the mission of new community that has transformed and formed me. These are very trying times. Why should Christians be politically engaged? Because at the core of our faith, church is what? To love our neighbor and to work for the common good. How, then, should Christians be politically engaged? This is where it's going to get a bit tough. Everybody, okay? Buckle up, because this is where I'm going to offend some of y'all. Okay? How should Christians be politically engaged? First of all, by engaging in the political process. Political process. Matthew 5.16. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the good deeds that Jesus talks about includes what I would call a political process. You're going, well, what is political process, Pastor Peter? Well, when we cast a vote to influence who gets elected and what policies are enacted, that's involved in political process. When we write letters to the editor of the local newspaper, when we call local and state legislature to advocate for certain issues and bring awareness to certain issues, when we march in a rally, and for some, when we run for office like Daniel and work for political campaigns, these are all ways of working for the political process. You go, well, why is that important? Here's why. The leaders as well as the legislation Policies that come out of the political process have significant real-life implications for millions of people. Depending on who we elect and the policies they enforce, do you realize that up to 11 million immigrants, 11 million immigrants and their families will be impacted for generations to come? Do you realize, depending on who we elect, possibly up to 20 million people will or will not have health insurance? And the list goes on and on and on. And I hear somebody go, well, but change in public policy doesn't save anybody's souls. Electing a wise leader rather than a foolish one or adopting a helpful policy rather than a damaging one brings no one to faith in Christ. I agree with you on that, but... Electing a wise, just, righteous leader who will enact wise, just policies will powerfully shape 
the world we live in. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Engagement in the political process is one of the ways that we pursue justice for our neighbors, helping to improve their lives. Everybody look at me. You cannot say that you love me and not care about the policies that affect me. You cannot say that you love me and not care about the policies that affect me. Not every Christian needs to get a degree in public policy. Do it if you're called to, or run for public office. Do it if you're called to. Not everyone needs to work for campaigns or donate to various candidates. But please, but please, but please, be informed and vote. How should Christians be politically engaged? Not only by engaging in the process, but secondly, by engaging in a manner that reflects Jesus Christ. By engaging in a manner that reflects Jesus Christ. Is your political engagement on Facebook, social media, talking, is it Christ-like? When there's so much vitriol, hate, do you, Christian, vilify, mock, demonize people? Do you see someone of a different political persuasion? Do you see them as an enemy to be fought or a neighbor to be loved? Do you assume the best of that person? Do you assume the best of that person? Are we not gospel people? Doesn't that cross ultimately anchor and determine how we behave even towards our enemies? Unless the gospel humbles you, you will think that the enemy is over there when the real enemy is in here too. You and I are just as much the problem as things out there. Take the plank out of your own eye before you address the speck in theirs. Don't tune me out. Only self-righteousness says that they're the problem. It's only gospel humility that enables people to cooperate with someone find common causes with someone and work with someone who might not agree. We need postures of humility, truthfulness, joy, kindness, and love for our enemies. Postures profoundly lacking on both sides of the aisle. I would argue that the deepest divide in American politics right now is not between the right or the left, but between those who are committed to these postures of gospel humility and those who are not. Whether the candidate you are voting for wins or loses is not what ultimately defines success of a Christ follower. You and I could win an election but lose our soul in the process. We could win an election but lose our soul in the process. So what does it mean, Pastor Peter? Well, be biblically orthodox and radically loving at the same time in your engagement. Without compromising your convictions, don't ever compromise convictions. Love your atheist neighbor who wants to keep creationism out of schools and if needed, die for them. Love your neighbor who wants to keep gay marriage and abortion legal. And yes, if, will, if, if, if you are called to, be willing to lay your life down for them. Love your neighbor who supports the death penalty and gun ownership and if called be willing to lay your life down for them and if you're going well who would do that jesus would he would be willing to die for them he actually did he actually did 
How should Christians be politically engaged? Next one, don't ask, is God on our side? But ask, are we on God's side? Don't ask, is God on our side? Or are we on God's side? Let me just say this, broadly speaking first and narrowly. Broadly speaking. And I was talking to someone. It's amazing how when it comes to every four years around elections, we all think that America is the center of the universe. It's like the rest of the world just stops. Okay? So I'm going to speak some hard truth to some of us this morning. Okay? I want to declare this truth. Our allegiance is to God's kingdom before it is to America. Can I get an amen? We are kingdom citizens before we are American citizens. Before we pledge allegiance to America, we pledge allegiance to Jesus and the fulfillment of his kingdom on earth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Not God so loved America that he gave his one and only son. He shed his blood for every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. I believe that God wants to bless the world and not just America. God isn't on America's side. America isn't the new Israel. America isn't the center of God's affections above every nation on earth. I don't think Jesus is sitting in heaven singing God bless America with the declaration of independence on his desk and the pictures of the founding fathers on his wall. I don't. I don't think Jesus is an American patriot. If Jesus is a patriot, then he's a patriot for a kingdom immensely larger, greater, and superior than America or any other nation. The flag our Savior waves is the flag of his own kingdom to which all nation, all tribe, and all tongue will one day bow their knee. Listen to me. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. I'm an immigrant who was given wonderful opportunities because of this country. Think about it. If not for America, I would not be here, and there might not be new community. So I'm grateful for this country. But when people say that red, white, and blue matters more than the color of your skin, you are pledging allegiance to America before God's kingdom. You see, in the kingdom, I'm pretty sure that God wants to see each other in all of our glorious colors, cultures, and particularities. Color blindness is not a kingdom value. It is a dangerous myth. We have a world of CEOs, politicians, police, judges, and juries who are anything but colorblind. Check out Revelation 5 and 7, Christian. God seems to be a big fan of diversity. Can I get an amen? And you'll see every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping God in their own languages. Rather than being erased, our ethnicities, cultures, and languages are maintained and celebrated for all of eternity. That is good news. But more narrowly speaking, let me speak to you. God is not a Democrat, and God is not a Republican. Please don't use God to justify your politics. The real question for us as followers of Jesus, listen, is this. Are we on God's side? Are we about God's agenda? Are we more about what God cares about? Let me shock you. Donald Trump and Joe Biden have almost nothing in common, but there's one thing they have in common. Did you know that? Besides being old white men, there's one other thing they have in common. You don't know what that is? They will talk endlessly about helping the middle class, prioritizing the middle class, what we can do to lift the middle class. Christian, Bible-believing Christian, did you ever stop and ask, is that what Jesus prioritized? Yes, the Bible is relatively silent about the middle class, partly because there was no such thing as a middle class in the Roman Empire or the Near East. But I think the Bible is relatively silent about the middle class because it's concerned with the interests of someone else. You know what that is? The poor. Isn't that what Jesus prioritized? Read the Old Testament prophets. Isn't that what God seems to prioritize again and again? And listen, this is not to say that middle class isn't important. I'm just pointing out how both political parties and both platforms will not always align with kingdom priorities. I know there are very strong feelings out there about certain issues. 
But please be careful about saying that the issue that matters to you the most matters to God the most. And someone who doesn't agree with you is not a real Christian. When you do that, you are making God in your own image. When we lose our focus on Jesus, we talk a lot about stuff that Jesus didn't say a whole lot about. And we wind up talking a whole lot about things which Jesus didn't say much about. So, more important than left or right, again, is centered on Christ. Centered on Christ. Centered on Christ. Let's be about what Jesus was about. <sighs> Lastly, how should Christians be politically engaged? And this is the most important. Really, it is. It is. And if you've hung in there with me to the very end, you need to anchor yourself in this. How should Christians be politically engaged? By putting your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. Put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. Christian, where is your hope? Where are you placing your faith and your hope? Candidate? Party? Platform? Don't take my word for it. Take the words of Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, a woman who has spent vast majority of her life working, working on the injustice of mass incarceration. These are her words about where she thinks hope ought to be. Solving the crisis we face isn't simply a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analysis, or funding. I no longer believe that we can win justice simply by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. This is Michelle Alexander. Then she says, without a moral and spiritual awakening. <laughs> Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will forever be remained in a trap, in a political games fueled by fear, greed, and the hunger for heart. Let me say that again. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. Yes, Jesus says, be engaged in every facet of society, Christian. The spiritual, the social, the economic, political, because redemption is for every facet of creation. But do not think, but do not think, but do not think that political means is the way you usher in the kingdom of God. Do not be seduced into thinking that political powers are ultimate. It is an inadequate vehicle for the enormous changes that I am about to bring. I want to declare here this morning and every Sunday that there is one person who could bring about a moral and spiritual awakening in this country, and his name is Jesus. There is one person who could bring about the kind of moral and spiritual awakening in this country that could bring about fundamental change, and his name is Jesus. Can I get an amen? We do not place our hope in this candidate or that candidate. We do not place our hope in this person or that person. We place our hope in a far greater, far better, far more glorious king. The king who died on the cross for sin. The king who came in flesh and lived a sinless, perfect life and died on the cross to save you and me from sin. This king showed his kingship not by being elected, but by being executed. And three days after he died, he rose from the grave. Hallelujah. He rose from the grave. Church, 
39 presidents have lived, have led, and have died, and their bodies are still in the grave, but not our king. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And of increase of his government and his peace, Isaiah 9, 7, there will be no end. Can Jesus walk out of that tomb? This is my hope. This is my hope. This is my hope. He walked out of that tomb, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And one day soon, the Father is going to say to him, it's time. It's time. Not for election, but for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Where every sin, evil, injustice, sickness, and death will be defeated once and for all. And his rule and reign of peace, of justice, of compassion, of love will forever and ever and ever rule. And Jesus is going to rise from his seat, church. A trumpet is going to blare from the sky. And Jesus is going to come back and all the nations of the earth, including the United States of America, will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We place our hope in the name of the Lord our God. Christian, work. Christian, vote. Christian, live as lives who are engaged in every facet of our society. That is our call. That is our duty. That is our job. But do not place your hope in a presidential candidate. Place your hope in the president of all presidents, the king above all kings and the Lord of all lords. You and I today need what no presidential candidate or party can give. Do not walk away this morning thinking that you need that party or you need that candidate. Walk away knowing that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? Will you bow your heads with me? I want to lead us through this short time of prayer. In our anxiety, our fretting, our concern about what is to come, I want us to be anchored in truth, in truth, and in truth. And it begins here, Christian. Have you bowed, have you bowed your knees to Jesus as King? Christian or not, this morning as you're listening, have you bowed your knees, Christian, to Jesus as King, as Lord, with every facet of your life, including political engagement? Is He King? Is He Lord? And if you have not, said, Jesus, I want you to be king. I want you to be Lord. I want you to know that he came and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And when you place your faith and trust in him and yield and surrender to him, you can find forgiveness and redemption and begin anew. And followers of Jesus, what a perfect time for us to ask ourselves, have I bowed my knees to Jesus as King, as Lord? And if you have not, this morning say, Jesus, I yield, I surrender totally, holy. Be King over my life. Be Lord over my life. And then I'd love for us, I'm just going to say these four prayer requests all at once. And I'd love for us to, for the next minute or two, just as the Spirit leads, pray, pray for, for one, two, or more of these things. These are some things that we can be praying for as we are towards Tuesday. One of the things we can pray for is pray for wisdom for voters and a safe and fair election. 
wisdom for voters and a safe and fair election. Here's another you could be praying for. Pray that the candidates will take brave stands for righteousness even when it may not be well received. Pray that the candidates will take brave stands for righteousness even when it may not be well received. Here's another we can pray for. Ask the Lord to awaken the church. Awaken and revive the church to the temporary nature of the nations and the eternal nature of the rule and reign of God. And lastly, another thing you and I can pray for is pray for, as Michelle Alexander says, a moral awakening to sweep through this nation. A spiritual and moral awakening. So let me give you some minute or two to pray for some of these things and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray together, church. King Jesus, only your government will ever meet the needs of our sinful hearts in a restless world. Father, will you make this more real to us than ever in this election season? Through your resurrection and ascension, you've already installed Jesus as the ruler of king on earth. King David's throne has become your throne of grace from which you are actively ruling the world with your truth and your grace. No one and nothing can derail, deter, or distract you from bringing completion, your good work of redemption and restoration. Jesus, you never promised to do all things acceptable to us, but you have promised to do all things good for us. There is no one like you. You alone are worthy of our trust and praise. You alone are worthy of our allegiance. You alone are worthy of our hope. Regardless of who gets selected, we declare this morning that the grave is still empty, the kingdom is still advancing, and God sits on the throne. We will place our ultimate hope not in who becomes the president. Our hope is in the risen one. And you will finish making all things new and beautiful. So we pray all this in your mighty and powerful name. And all of God's people said, Amen.